0: Good morning, everybody. All right, if you got your Bibles, let's turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. And today we'll be covering the parable of the persistent widow. The persistent widow. That's in Luke chapter 18, and it'll be in verses 1 through 8. Um, I'll remind you of this once again, one more time before we leave, but there is no Bible study next Sunday. So next Sunday's Christmas Eve, I think there's going to be an abbreviated service. Um, I'm not real sure about the service, but anyway, all I do know is is there's no Bible study. So I'll remind you again before we before we leave. Luke 18, 1 through 8. Today I counted up, and today is our 35th lesson on the uh uh parables. And so we've been in here um, roughly doing the parables about nine months, and as we've said uh numerous times, um, Each parable is like a piece of a jigsaw puzzle, right? If you look at each parable, it it has a lesson about the kingdom of God. All the parables are about the kingdom of God, but it's about different aspects of the kingdom of God. And if you put them all together, it's kind of like doing a jigsaw puzzle on a on a table, and you step back and you can see the big picture. And that's kind of the way the parables are. They all put them together and you get a really good or a complete picture of the kingdom of God. Now, today's parable deals specifically with prayer. And it's actually, uh, as far as I can remember, the first parable that we've encountered so far that actually deals with prayer. And so it should be a an, an interesting one. Now, as we've noticed, if as we've gone through these 34, 35 weeks talking about parables, we've probably noticed something. Sometimes Jesus will tell a parable and he gives no application. For example, if I go, if I can remember correctly, he says, uh, the kingdom of God is like a man who he's digging in a field and he founds a treasure and and that treasure is worth so much that he, that he covers it up and he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field and then he moves on. If I remember correctly, he he doesn't give an application. Now the application is obvious that it's, it's talking about the value of the kingdom of God. It's worth everything that we have to give up or anything that we have to, to to trade or whatever the case may be, it's everything's worth the kingdom of God. It's that valuable, but there's no application. Other times he will tell a parable and then he'll give the application at the end of it. Now this parable today is a little bit different because Luke gives us the application right at the very beginning. Look at verse one, Luke 181. It says this. And and this is Luke writing and he talking about Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So he tells us right off the bat, this is what this parable is about, that you ought to always pray and not lose heart. So even before we go into the parable, we've already got the key in the door. We don't have to figure anything out. We know what the parable is all about. So that's, again, right at the very beginning. So as we go into the parable, let's kind of look and see how Jesus chooses to teach us this lesson. Let's look again at verses one through two. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So he said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Now, I want you to notice very quickly the description of this judge. He didn't fear God and he didn't fear man. What are the two greatest commandments? Love God, Love your neighbor. This guy doesn't do either one of these. So right out of the gate, this guy has already broke the first two commandments. He doesn't love God, doesn't care anything about God, doesn't worry, he doesn't care anything about the will of God, and he doesn't care anything about man. Doesn't respect his neighbor, doesn't care about the needs of his neighbor. So right off the bat, this guy's broken the first two, the, the two greatest commandments, okay? Now, so this man is about as wicked as you can, can get. Once again, no concern for the will of God, no concern for his fellow human being. This guy is motivated by one thing and one thing only, and that's what's good for him. That's, that's all he cares about, okay? So again, this is a, a lot of times in our parables we'll see extremes. Right? This is again one of the extremes. You've got a guy who cares nothing about God, nothing about his neighbor, only about himself. Now, if this guy was just some farmer who lived out in the middle of nowhere, that would be one thing. But this guy is not a farmer. This guy has a job who, he, he, he affects other people's lives on a daily basis because this guy is a judge. Right? Now, Here's a guy who should be rendering his judgments fairly. He he should be rendering his judgments according to the law of God. He he should be trying to be fair to his fellow man. He should be concerned about the needs, but he's not moved by either one of those things. So Jesus calls him an unrighteous judge. That means he's corrupt, He's, he's dishonest. I mean, this guy, is as, this is as bad as it gets. I mean, let's face it, even in our society today, we expect our judges to be at a certain status, right? We expect our judges to be honest. There's nothing worse than a dishonest judge because the, the very description of their job means they should be judging fairly. So there's to us, there's really nothing worse than a dishonest judge, and that's exactly what this guy was. Now, in that day... There were different kind of courts, but the kind of court that this guy would have been over would be something similar to our civil courts. Now, every town, every village in those days or every city would have these courts, these civil courts. Something, a city like Jerusalem would have had multiple uh, of these courts, but every, even little cities would have these. And their job of these civil courts was to settle the issues or the disputes that people would encounter in their Everyday lives. They might be land disputes or business disputes or, or, or some kind of social dispute. Whatever the case may be, that was their job to settle these things. Now, every judge in Israel would have been very familiar with the requirements of a judge. In other words, it, it was a serious responsibility, not just to society, but in Israel, it was a serious responsibility to God, to dispense ju- d- justice and uphold justice, justice in front of the people. And there were specific warnings for those who did not do that. For example, Second Chronicles 19, verses 5 through 7, it says, He, talking about Jehoshaphat, appointed judges in all the land, in all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. And he said to the judges, Consider what you do, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord." He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking bribes. So when these courts are set up, Jehoshaphat warns them, look, you're working for the Lord. You're you're judging in front of God. God doesn't show partiality. God doesn't take bribes. So be very careful how you judge. So all the, if you were a judge in Israel in that day, you knew this thing. You knew there were warnings against being a corrupt judge. Uh, Isaiah ten one through 2 says this, woe to those who enact evil statutes and to those who constantly record unjust decisions, so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor of my people of their rights, so that widows may be their spoil and they may plunder the orphans. He so Isaiah, man, one of the greatest prophets ever, issues a warning and says, woe to unjust judges. Woe to unrighteous judges. Those who, who, who defraud widows and defraud orphans and, and, and render unjust decisions. Woe to you. <clears throat> because there is, again, they, they are held to a very, very high standard in the land of Israel. But let me tell you, just like today, it was the same then. Despite those warnings, Despite those, those high standards that they were held to, there had always been corrupt judges throughout the land of Israel. Amos 5, 1 through 2 prophesies the word of the Lord comes and says this to Israel I know your transgressions are many and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor in the gate. So, this, this you know, back from Jehoshaphat days all the way up to the days of Jesus, this had been going on. Right There had always been unjust judges. Now, in verse 3, we meet a woman, and specifically a widow, who comes to this judge's court. Verse 3 says this, And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. Now, in this case, someone has either defrauded her or is attempting to defraud her. We don't know which. They're trying to steal something. They're trying to to take something from her. And so she keeps coming to this judge for justice. She keeps coming to this judge for protection. Okay, So she comes over and over and over again. Now there are two things from this simple verse that we can discern about this woman. First of all, she's desperate. Right, This guy is her only hope. If she's going to get any protection from this businessman or from this whoever it is that's trying to take her land or take her house or take her money or whatever the case may be, this judge is the only one who can help her. And we know she's desperate because she keeps coming over and over and over and over again. She just won't stop. Why? Because he's the only one that can help her. There's nowhere else for her to go. This is her last and only hope. Secondly, the other thing we know about this woman is she is all alone, right? You see, in that day and time, a woman wouldn't even be allowed to come to court unless she had no man to speak for her. So she had no husband, she had no father, she had no uncle, she had no brother, she had no son. There was no man in her family that could speak for her because if there was, they would come and speak in that day and time. So we know she's all by herself. She has no man to stick up for her. It's just her. And so she keeps coming to this judge over and over again. Now, as I'm reading through this, I ask myself the question, why does Jesus use a widow in this parable? Wouldn't the parable have been the same if he had said a man? It would have taught the same lesson. A man kept coming and asking for justice. It it would have been the same lesson. See, let me tell you, this parable is not really about the woman. This parable is about the judge. See, Jesus is going to say in a minute, listen to what that judge says. We'll see that in a second. It's really about the judge. And what we need to see is how bad this guy was. That's what Jesus wants us to see. This is a bad guy. So to even make him worse than a normal bad judge, this is why Jesus uses a widow. You see, if you go back to the Old Testament, it's crystal clear in Scriptures that widows hold a special place in God's heart. Widows and orphans were always to, to, to be taken care of with great care. They were to be extended justice in all situations, right? For example, Exodus 22, 22-24, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Now that's about as tough a warning as you can get. You mistreat a widow, I'll make your wife a widow. You mistreat an orphan, I'll make your children orphans. That's what God is saying. I mean, that this, this, you do not mistreat a widow. You give them the benefit of the doubt. Deuteronomy twenty four seventeen. You must never accept a widow's garment as security for her debt. In other words, if a widow comes to you and she needs to borrow money, you loan her the money, but you don't accept anything for her as security. You give her the benefit of the doubt. Why? Because she's a widow. She doesn't have a man to take care of her. Isaiah one 16 through 16-17, Seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the cause of the orphans, fight for the rights of the widows. You see it over and over. Widows and orphans, widows and orphans, widows and orphans, take care of them. Extend them the benefit of the doubt. Uh, extend justice to them. It's obvious they have a special place in God's heart. So they were to be cared for. Their needs were to be prioritized in society. By the way, you come to the New Testament and, and, and revival's breaking out and, and somebody comes with a complaint. Hey, the widows aren't being taken care of. You remember that in the book of Acts? I mean, that, they are always to have priority. But listen... This judge is so wicked that he don't even care about widows and orphans. I mean, this is exactly why Jesus uses a widow, because he wants you to see how bad... This, that's what this parable is all about. It's about how bad this judge is. So he uses a widow in this to magnify the wickedness of the judge. I mean, come on, man, you should at least... Even if you don't care about other people, at least you care about widows and orphans, but this guy doesn't. He could care less. So, very consistently with who he is, consistent with his disdain for God, and, and, and consistent with his lack of compassion for people, he refuses her help. Verse eight, uh, Luke 18, verse 4. It says, for a while he refused. Now, she keeps coming and coming and coming, and he says, no, get out of here. No, I, I, I don't want to hear you. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. Go away. You got no standing. Just refuses her over and over again. But eventually, something changes. Now, we need to notice what changes. Has he, has he found Jesus? Has he seen the light? Has, I mean, what is it that creates this sudden change of heart? Now, what we do know is this guy hasn't changed at all. In fact, look at verse 4. For a while he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man. In other words, this guy, at least he was honest. He knew exactly who he was. He says, I don't care about God. I don't care about people. I don't care about any of that. I'm, I'm an atheist. I, it doesn't really matter. This, this life is all about get whatever you can and go with it. So at least he's honest. He hasn't changed at all, right? So why does he all of a sudden change his mind and decide to give the widow justice? Let's look at verse 5. Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. So the first thing we see is there's no noble motive here. This guy is not all of a sudden woke up one day and said, you know what, I, I really need to start being a good judge. No, it's got nothing to do with that. He has not changed at all. In fact, he's already admitted right there that he has no regard for God. He doesn't care about people. The only thing he cares about is himself, right? He doesn't care what pleases God, doesn't care what pleases man. The only thing he cares about is what pleases him. That's what drives him in his life. Now, there's a, a very interesting... I don't know how, what your translation says there. And the ESV says, "...she will not beat me down." That wo- Greek word there is eupopiesa. It literally means to hit somebody in the eye. That's really what it means. It means to strike under the eye. That's what it means in the Greek. In other words, I, I'm going to give her justice because she's continually hitting me in the eye. She's continually striking me the eye. By the way, um, that's the same term that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 9:27 when he says I beat my body. I discipline my body. I buffet. Everybody remember that? That's the same term. UPOS it. it means I strike myself under the eye. I beat myself to 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 bring my body into submission so that I do the right thing. In other words, what this guy's is saying is with she keeps coming and she's literally punching me silly. I mean, she's just beating me down. She's just hitting me. It's like, it's like he's receiving blows every day that she comes. It's another blow. Um, it's like, can you imagine he's got a secretary out there and he says, who's next? And he, she says, it's that widow again. 30 days in a row, 60 days in a row. I don't know how long it was. All I know is after a while, it literally beat him down. I threw in Proverbs 21, 9, which was Kathy's daddy's, one of his top two favorite scriptures. That it's better to live on the corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. See, she, he just, she just beat him down. I, I was teasing Kathy. I said that was uh, her daddy's first scripture. The second one is, "Go to the ant, you sluggard." He loved. He loved that one. He was a hard. He was a hard worker. But see, there's nothing noble here, right? For his own selfish reasons, he gives in. He just got sick of her. He wanted her off the docket. He just, he got tired of every single day coming to work and that woman sitting outside the door saying, give me justice. He just got absolutely sick of it. So you've got this powerful man who is literally impervious to the scripture. He's impervious to good works. He's impervious to the needs even of widows and orphans. He could care less. And he finally gets wore down through her persistence. Now, that is the end of the parable. Now, Jesus adds this piece of commentary. And the Lord said, now listen, hear what that unrighteous judge just said. Now listen, that that should make our ear. When Jesus tells us, listen to what that guy just said, that should make our ears perk up, right? Because that means something he just said is important. There's a truth in there, that, something that he just said. There's a truth there that should teach us about the kingdom of God. Well, what is that truth? Now, I'm going to stop right here, and we need to add some context to this. Right, So far, we, we always look at context, don't we, in this class? Right, Jesus is always talking to a certain group of people. He's at a certain place in a certain time. He's got a certain subject in mind. We don't just pull things out and build theology off of them. What's the context? You remember in verse 1 it says, "...he told them a parable." Well, the first thing we need to know is, well, who is them? Who is he talking to? Is he talking to Pharisees? Is he talking to Sumerians? Is he, is, he, is he talking to all of his disciples? Is he talking to true disciples? Who's he Who's he talking to? If you go back, if you've got your Bible open, you can flip back one chapter to, verse, to chapter 17. Verse 11, it says this. He's on, on the way to Jerusalem. He's passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Remember we talked about this in chapter 16. Jesus is on His way to Jerusalem. He's got about a few days. He'll enter in on on, uh, on Sunday and He will go in and they'll be crying, Hosanna. Right, He's on his way to making the triumphal entry. He's on his way to Jerusalem to spend the last week of his life. He is very close to the crucifixion. That's where he's going here in Luke, uh, Luke chapter 17. So he's on his way to Jerusalem. He knows what's ahead of him. And on his way there, he's stopped and he's asked by some Pharisees when the kingdom of God is going to come. And then in verse 22, he turns and begins to talk to the disciples. Now, I want you to understand, by this time in his ministry, when Jesus says he's talking to his disciples, he's talking to the true believers. Because all the pretenders have gone. Everybody with me? Remember the word disciple just means follower. Jesus had a lot of followers at one time who just followed him. But when the teaching got tough, they turned and walked away. Everybody remember that? Jesus said, If unless you eat my uh eat if, if as you take the bread which is my body, and you drink my blood, you shall have no part of me. A- and people said, Man, this is a tough saying. Who can hear this kind of thing? And it said, From that point on, many of his followers left him. And that's when he turned to the twelve and said, Are you going to leave too? And that's when Peter said, Lord, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of life. Right. So by the time you get to this point, when he's talking to his disciples, these ain't no pretenders. These are the real deal. These are the people who have left all to follow him. And so he turns in chapter 17, verse 22, and he begins to talk to his disciples. And guess what he begins to talk to them about? He begins to talk about the second coming. Verses 24 to 37, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the Son of Man. On that day, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah went in the ark and the flood came and killed them all. They were going along just like everything was fine, no problems. Nothing's ever going to change. What is today will be tomorrow and will be the next day until the day Noah went in the ark and they all died. And Jesus says, that's the way it'll be when I come back. Everybody will be just going about life just like there's going to be a tomorrow until the day he comes back and they're all destroyed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in the bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. So if you read these scriptures in verse 17, he's talking about the second coming. It's all about the second coming as he's talking to his disciples. And then you come to verse chapter 18, verse 1, and it says, And he said to them, let me tell you a parable. Now, as far as we know, there's been no scene change, has there? Th- there's been no audience change. He's still talking to his disciples. And, it, and, and b- beyond anything that we can tell, there's been no change of subject. See, he spent all his time talking about the second coming. He says, let me tell you a parable. You ought always to pray and not lose heart. See, what Jesus is talking about in this parable, and what He's telling us, is that in the time between the first and the second coming, we are not to lose heart that Christ will return, but rather we are to pray. You see, this parable is all about praying about the second coming. It's not necessarily about... By the way... If you think Jesus teaches that we should pray persistently about everything, if you want to make a note, you can read it later, go to Luke 11. If you turn back over to Luke 11, the disciple says, Jesus, teach us to pray. And Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And when he gets to the end of that, he tells them a story. What's your view that has a friend? And you go to him at midnight requesting bread, and he says, no, man, I'm in bed, my kids are in bed, I'm not getting up, yet that friend will still get up and give you bread if you keep knocking on the door just because of your... So he teaches that in Luke 11, but that's not what this is about. This is about specifically praying for the second coming. You see, the Lord knew back then that he's about... Remember, where is he going? He's heading to Jerusalem. He knows it's, it's coming to an end, this earthly ministry. I'll be dead. He knows he'll be dead in a week or so. And then he's going to rise again. He'd be here 40 days, and then he's gone again. See, and he knew that when he leaves, it's going to be a long time before he comes back. And for us, in hindsight, we can look and say, you know what, it's been 2,000 years, and he's still not come back. Where is he? Why is he not coming back? But what we need to understand even though we've got 2000 years of history to look at, pretty much everybody looks at the second return in the context of their lifetime. Does that make sense? For example, did you know that even in the days of the apostles, the church some church people were always getting already getting anxious that he hadn't come back? In 2nd Peter chapter 3, Peter is writing a letter to the churches, and he's right again, Jesus probably hadn't even been gone 20 years, 30 years, not 2000. And and Peter's already having to write to the churches and say, guys, listen, don't you know that scoffers are going to come in the last days? And they're going to say, hey, where is he? He said he's coming back. Where is he? And Peter said, listen, don't overlook this one thing. A day is with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. He doesn't see time. The way that, that we see time. See, even then, he was already having to say, look, it's okay. He's coming back. Don't worry. And here we are 2,000 years later, and that same scripture is still, we still read it today. And see, while we wait and he doesn't come, his name is continually dishonored. It's got so bad they use his name as a cuss word. Do they not? Everywhere you turn, they're using the name of Jesus Christ as a slander, as a cuss word. They belittle the Word of God. They call good things evil and evil things good. And all the while, Christians are, 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 are treated, we're rejected, we're maligned, we're belittled. There are, they're even being martyred across this planet. We suffer while we wait. We suffer at the hands of Satan. We suffer at the hands of a fallen world and we wonder, where is he? Why aren't you coming back and making this right? You said you were going to come back. Where are you? See, year after year goes by, and he doesn't return. And for many, they begin to drift away. They come in, and they serve him for a a few months. They serve him for a few years, but then think maybe life doesn't quite turn out the way it has, and And they heard all this stuff about the second coming, but the fact is year after year they get up and they drive that same drive to work and they go to that same job and they pay the same bills and it's just redundant and after a while it just begins to wear them down. And one day you look up and they're not coming to church quite as frequently, they're not coming to Bible study, they're not in their word, and then one day they're gone. See, what this parable is saying, look, while you're waiting pray. While you're waiting, don't lose heart. Keep praying for my return. That that word, lose heart, comes from a Greek term which I can't pronounce. It's egkakoa It means to quit. It means become so weary that you just quit. I, I can't do it anymore. It, it also has the meaning to become a coward and run, to quit the, the battle, to quit the fight. See, Jesus is telling us, pray that you don't do that. Matthew 24, 13 tells us, He that endures to the end is the one that will be saved. See, true Christians last. And Jesus is telling us in parable, pray that you last. Pray not only for His coming, but pray that you endure to the end. That's what this parable is all about. Don't give up hope that Jesus is coming. Mockers are going to come. Yeah, we may be ridiculed, but let me tell you, here's the truth. He is coming. He is coming. Don't lose heart. Don't quit. Be strong. Be courageous. Keep at it. So, this parable is not a general call to persistent prayer. By the way, there's plenty of those. Pray without ceasing, Paul says, did he Not? As I mentioned earlier, Luke 11, there's plenty of calls that we should always pray. But that's not what this parable is about. This is, a pr- this is about praying for a certain thing. Pray that the Lord will come and pray for the strength to endure until He does. You see, this morning, I was thinking about this. I pray a lot. I don't remember the last time I really prayed He'd come. Do you? In fact, I pray a lot for a lot of things, but I don't remember the last time I prayed that I would endure to the end. Do you? But that's what this is about. Now, you may say, well, Derek, are you sure that's what this is about? I I see the whole context thing you built there earlier, but are you sure that's what this is about? Look at verses 7 and 8. And shall God not avenge His own elect who cry out day and night to Him, though He bears long with them? I tell you, He will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless... When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? See, there it is. He's talking about he's talking about the uh, um, uh, he's talking about the second coming coming into the parable, and here at the end of the parable, he talks about it again. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? See, he's he's not changed this. Everybody see that? He's not changed the subject. He's still talking about the second coming. See, listen, as Christians, we should be a people who long for His appearing. 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul writes to Timothy and says this, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. But not only me, but also to all who love His appearing. Who, who, who look forward to it. Who wait on it. Who long for it. That's the kind of people that we should be. First Thessalonians 4:18 says, "Therefore encourage one another with these words. You know what? That encouragement with one another with what words? You know what those words he's talking about? Second coming. First John 3:3, 3, 3, Brother Bill last week stood on this stage and preached this: "He that has this hope in him purifies himself." What hope? The hope of his return." 2 Corinthians 5:11, knowing the terror of the Lord. We persuade men. You see, in fact, the reason the second coming is so important, the second coming and, and it's, should be a priority in our life because it changes everything. We evangelize because we know the Lord is coming. We're comforted in our trials and tribulations because we know the Lord is coming. We're purified. We get things right in our life because we know the Lord is coming. And there's many, many more. See, the second coming has, is tremendously critical when it comes to how we live our life. What we do with our time, how we, how we, what we do with our money. We've talked about that the last few weeks. How we, how we act within our marriage, how we raise our children. We do a lot of those things because we know He's coming and He's going to hold us accountable for those things. So how we live our lives should be powerfully influenced by the second coming of Jesus Christ, by the fact that we know it's, it's, it's just around the corner. We're to live with that expectation. So now, in our parable, we know who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to true disciples. And we know what the parable is about, that we should pray for His return, and that we should pray that we endure until He does come. Now, let's go back to verse 6, where we left off. And the Lord said, "Here." what that unrighteous judge said. Hear what he said, folks. True disciples, those of you that love the Lord, those of you that are looking for His second coming, hear what that guy said. Now let's go back and see what he said. This is what the unrighteous judge said. Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Now what is in there that we need to hear? Or what is in there that we need to see? I want you to think about that man. As we said earlier, he's indifferent to God. He could care less about God. He's an atheist. Don't even believe in God. And 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 to make it matters worse, he could care less about people. You're a widow? What do I care? Go find you a man. I don't care. Get out of here. Go find somebody else to take care of you. I'm not going to deal with you. Are you an orphan? I don't care. I mean, this man is as bad as it gets. Yet he finally does what is right for purely selfish reasons because he just don't want to be irritated by this woman anymore. He finally does what's right for a woman who he has no affection, no feeling, no attachment, no nothing. Now go back to verse 7 and let's see the contrast. Jesus says, "...shall God not avenge His own elect, His own chosen children?" who cry out day and night to Him, who pray to Him, though He bears long with them, I tell you, He will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth. I mentioned to you a few weeks ago, of course, Jesus was a Jew. And in that day, there was a certain method of teaching. It's called the lesser and the greater. You remember that a few weeks ago? We talked about this. Jesus would say, if this is true... If a man would do this, how much more would God do this? If a man will do something on this level, how much more will God do something on this level? That's exactly what he's doing here. he's, he's, He's teaching us two extremes to teach us a biblical lesson. On one hand, you have the most wicked, indifferent judge doing what is right for someone who he cares absolutely nothing about. Jesus is saying, if a judge like that can be guilted, can be beaten down into doing what's right, for someone who he cares nothing about, what will a righteous, loving God, someone that chose you in him before the foundation of the world, what in the world do you think a God that loves you would do? That's the two extremes he's setting here. See, this parable is really... In some ways, it's about us, but it's also about this: how bad this judge is. See, Romans 8.32 says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how much more will he not give us all things? If he didn't spare his own son, how much more would he not give us all things? See, you and I are representing this parable by the widow. We are at the mercy of a judge, are we not? But you see, our judge is not like that judge in the parable. Our judge is compassionate. Our judge is tender-hearted. Our judge is forgiving. Our judge is loving. And by the way, oh yeah, he happens to be my father. It's pretty cool. We see it all the time, doesn't we? So You know, uh, we were, I was reading an article the other day and it was talking about justice and something. It was talking about how, you know, if you know somebody... Things kind of get swept under the rug. Everybody ever seen something like that? It's all about who you know. Well, let me tell you, when it comes to our judgment, it's all about who I know. Do you know Him? Do you know Him? See, I know a a father. I'm a part of his family. But he's not crooked. He's not hard. He's loving and tenderhearted and compassionate. So Jesus wants us to see if that wicked, unloving, unjust hard, selfish judge will do the right thing when people keep asking Him? How much more will your loving Father do the right thing when you keep asking Him? Keep praying. Keep asking. How much more when He loves you? I want to... i got five minutes. I want to do two quick things. I want to answer this question if I can. Why do we keep coming? Why, is, why should we pray persistently? Why isn't once enough? Why can't I just go to my Father and say, Father, listen, I want you to come back, and I need you to make sure I endure to the end. I'll I'll see you then. (laughs) You know? Why do we have to keep coming back? I think there's two reasons. First, because when we pray continually, it reminds us the end of the story has already been written. See, when you come to Him, it reminds you, Oh yeah, He's coming. He's coming. It doesn't, see, when we get away from the Word and we get away from prayer, that's when the world tends to beat you down. See, when you get away from prayer and you get away from the Word, all of a sudden you go into that job every day and all the things and family drama and all of this and all of a sudden you just get beat down and beat down and, but see, you stay in that Word and you stay in prayer and those things are held at arm's length. They can't come in here and affect you because that's why we keep coming back, because it reminds us of who we are. It reminds us that the end of the story. And see, this is foundational to our faith. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why, Paul? Why should we not be able to quit? Why should we be steadfast and immovable? Paul says, because you know that your work is not in vain. You know the end of the story. You know he's coming back. You know he's coming with rewards. You know that. See, knowing that makes us steadfast and courageous and strong and immovable because we know the end of the story, and and persistent prayer reminds us of that over and over and over. Secondly, when we pray, it brings us face to face with the judge. We're like that woman, we keep coming to the judge. see when we come to the, she knew he was her only hope, and see when we consistently pray, we come before the God, the judge of all, and it reminds us he's our only hope. Jesus said, "Are you also going to leave me?" What did Peter say? Where else are we going to go? <laughs> you alone are our only hope. See, when we keep coming back in prayer, it not only reminds us the end of the story has already been remitted already been written, it also reminds us of who He is, that He loves us, that He's compassionate, tender-hearted, quick to pardon. See? And it reminds us that He's coming again. Verse 8, I want to hit this really quickly. Jesus says this, nevertheless, nevertheless, after I've told you this whole story, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? What does he mean by that? Let me tell you, I'm not, I don't know if it was just kind of a question to himself, but this is how I read it. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith in you? In you. In you. See, it's not like this general thing. That's what he wants them to see. Are you going to be there when he comes? Are you going to endure to the end? Are you going to last? I mentioned Jesus is on His way to Jerusalem. On Sunday, He will walk into Jerusalem and people will throw palm branches in front of Him and they'll cry, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And three or four days later, those same people will say, crucify Him. Are we going to be like that? Are we going to be people who say, bless the Lord, bless God, I love God, and then ten years later, I don't, care, I don't want anything to do with Him. I thought that was the answer, but there's no... Is that who you're going to be, or are we going to people be people who stay strong and courageous and foundational and cannot be moved? Jesus says, "Pray that that will be the case. Pray not only that He will come, but pray that you stay strong all the way until the end." Next week, as I want to remind you, I said I would no more Bible, not no more Bible study, no Bible study next Sunday morning, Christmas Eve. Uh we are having church. I'm sure they'll they'll make some announcements here, uh, but no Bible study, so I want to wish everybody here a Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father.